Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. This is Audible. Recorded books and one-click digital present The Wars of the Roses, The Fall of the Plantagenets and the Rise of the Tudors by Dan Jones, narrated by John Curlis. Chapter 12. Havoc. Clement Paston, a student in London of around nineteen years old, wrote to his brother John in a state of some anxiety. Clement was a bright and level-headed young man who had studied at Cambridge before going down to the city in the late 1450s for a professional education. He'd grown up in turbulent times, and his East Anglian family's fortunes had risen and fallen according to the ebb and flow of national politics and the success or failure of their patrons near the royal court. Even at a relatively young age, he was used to seeing fortune's wheel turn, but on January the 23rd, 1461, when Clement sat down to dash off a communique to his relatives in the countryside, he admitted to his brother that he was writing in haste and not well at ease. Even by the standards of tumult that had become customary on the streets of London over the previous decade, the winter of 1460-61 to 61 was a disturbed and dangerous time. York's defeat at Wakefield was now well known around England, but the fact of his demise had done nothing to calm the realm. In the West, his wrathful son, Edward, eighteen years old, but by now a strapping man of six foot four inches, with a warrior's temperament, was leading an army against Henry VI's half-brother, Jasper Tudor. The Earl of Warwick, meanwhile, still held Henry prisoner, preventing any theoretical return to ordinary royal government. And most troubling of all, Queen Margaret was loose in the north, buoyed by her allies' victory in the field and said to be travelling south to take both vengeance and the capital. Rumours were flying around on the common voice, and Clement Paston reported a few that had reached his ears. He told of knights of the family's acquaintance who were taken or else dead. He described London's apparent preference for the Yorkists over the Queen, and he relayed the fear that French and Scottish mercenaries and the northern lords' English retainers, who made up a large part of the Queen's army, were being permitted to rob and steal in the towns through which they passed, a fate no Londoner wished to share. Clement advised his elder brother to muster forces, footmen and horsemen, in East Anglia, and be ready to join battle at any moment, making sure that the men raised were presented in clean and orderly fashion, for the sake of the family honour. God have you in his keeping, the young man signed off, and this was more than a conventional pleasantry of correspondence. England 
was in a state of civil war. The battles that had been fought between the factions since 1455 were sporadic, occasional outbursts of violence, but now armies were in the field throughout England and Wales, employing foreign mercenaries, trained noble retainers and haphazardly conscripted lords' tenants alike. On February the 2nd, 1461, Edward's army clashed with that of Jasper Tudor, Owen Tudor, and James Butler, Earl of Wiltshire, at Mortimer's Cross near Wigmore Castle in the Welsh Marches, where the road passed between London and Aberystwyth. It was a day that would burnish the eighteen-year-old Edward's reputation and his legend like no other. The Rose of Rouen, as he was nicknamed by Yorkist partisans, was joined in command by several stalwarts of his late father's Welsh lands, including Sir Walter Deverer and the Herbert brothers, Sir William and Richard Herbert of Raglan. Their enemies were formidably reinforced, for Wiltshire had brought over large contingents of Breton and French mercenaries, as well as his own retainers from his Irish estates. But they had marched at pace across Wales from Pembroke, and arrived at the battlefield weary. And in Edward they came up against a commander who was learning how to inspire men with a semi-devout fervour. On the morning of the battle, the winter sky was filled with a blinding and baffling sight. Three suns rising together over the horizon, which then combined to form a single blazing beacon in the sky. Edward read this as a divine portent, predicting his victory and his forces tore into the Wiltshire Tudor army, routing them in relatively short order. Jasper Tudor and the Earl of Wiltshire escaped the battlefield, but Owen Tudor, now about sixty years old, along with Sir John Throckmorton and seven other Lancastrian commanders, were captured. They were taken to the nearby town of Hereford, where a chopping block had been erected in the marketplace. According to one contemporary account, Owen Tudor expected his enemies to show him some leniency, although this would have been extraordinarily naive less than six weeks after the horrible butchery that had followed the Battle of Wakefield. Any remaining confidence drained from him when he saw the axe and the block. Stripped to his red velvet doublet, the old man stood before the assembled townsmen of Hereford and begged pardon and grace. Then the collar of his doublet was rudely torn away, and he was led toward the headsman. One chronicler wrote that Owen Tudor's last words recalled his wife, the Princess of France and Queen of England, who had seen fit to marry this humble Welshman and bear him his children. That head shall lie on the stock that was wont to lie on Queen Catherine's lap, he said. Then he put his heart and mind wholly unto God, and full meekly took his death. Owen Tudor's bloodied head was set upon the highest point of the market cross. Some time later, a woman, possibly Owen's mistress and the mother of his infant bastard, David Owen, was seen washing the blood from the mangled head, combing its hair, and setting more than one hundred candles around it. The crowd, if they took any notice, assumed she was insane. 
The Yorkist triumph at Mortimer's Cross barely lasted as long as the glow of the three suns that had preceded it. Jasper Tudor and Wiltshire fled, eventually to take refuge in Scotland. But theirs hadn't been the only Lancastrian army on the march. As Edward regrouped at Hereford, Queen Margaret was mustering her other allies, including the Dukes of Somerset and Exeter, Earls of Northumberland and Shrewsbury, a large host of northern lords, and the ubiquitous Callie Turncoat, Andrew Trollope. By February the 10th, this violent army of hardened northerners and foreign sellswords had burned and looted its way as far as Cambridgeshire. By February the 16th, they had broken the defences of Dunstable in Bedfordshire. London was close at hand, and Warwick, in charge both of King Henry VI and the Government of England, was forced to act. Earlier in the year, the Earl had written to Pope Pius II, telling him, Your Holiness must not be troubled if you have heard of the events in England and of the destruction of some of my kinsmen in the battle against our enemies. With the help of God and the King, who is excellently disposed, all will end well. Now his faith and confidence were to be tested. Warwick took a large army out of London, aided by John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, John de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk, William Fitz Allen, Earl of Arundel, and a clutch of his own peers, including his brother John Neville, his uncle Lord Falkenberg, and the treasurer Lord Bonville. They left Londoners in a state of deep trepidation. Another battle was fully expected, in which, as one correspondent put it, Great shedding of blood cannot be avoided, and whoever conquers, the crown of England loses, which is a very great pity. For the second time in less than six years, the two forces met at the city of St. Albans. But whereas in 1455 skirmishing and street fighting had taken place, on Shrove Tuesday, February the 17th, 1461, it was all-out war. Thousands of men descended on either side. The Milanese ambassador in France would hear stories of the Queen and Somerset commanding 30,000 men each. This was a wild exaggeration. But what isn't in doubt is the fear that these huge forces struck into the hearts of the ordinary people of St. Albans. The abbot, John Wethamstead, wrote in his official register of the savagery, profanity, and appetite for destruction among the northerners, who in his view seemed to consider any incursion south of the Trent as a divinely sanctioned opportunity to plunder and steal. In truth, the northern army was much more than a rabble with pillage on their minds. As they had shown at Wakefield, they were commanded with discipline and cunning— they also marched under one identity, with every man wearing the badge of Edward, Prince of Wales, a red and black band with ostrich feathers. Warwick's men were blindsided by enemy troops pouring into St. Albans at around 1 p.m. from the northwest, rather than the northeast, and after heavy fighting, the Yorkist vanguard was scattered fleeing in every direction as the hooves of the Lancastrian cavalry thundered after them. Abbot Wethamstead wrote of men being rounded up and run through with lances by their vengeful enemies, until finally 
Around 6 p.m., the darkness of the winter evening had fully fallen, and pursuit was no longer possible. As their men scampered for safety, Warwick and most of his fellow commanders and captains also melted away, until only one man of any noble dignity was left on the field. King Henry VI sat under a tree, laughing and singing as the battle raged about him. The king's guards, Lord Bonville and Sir Thomas Curiel, were taken prisoner and summarily executed on the orders of the queen, who allowed the eight-year-old prince to pronounce the sentences upon them. Henry, meanwhile, was reunited with his family, once more changing hands like a rag doll. Abbot Wetumstead met the king in the abbey and begged him to issue a proclamation against plundering. As ever, Henry VI did what he was told. His own army ignored him, and Wetumstead's beloved city of St. Albans fell to rape and robbery, as though, said the abbot, it had been invaded by rabid animals. As fortune swung violently back and forth between the two parties, England was plunged into a desperate mood of self-preservation. After St. Albans, the Queen decided to push on to London. The city, however, decided to make a stand against her. Ahead of her arrival, Margaret sent requests for food and refreshment to London, which were answered nervously but favourably by the mayor. But as carts laden with supplies were being dragged through the city toward the Cripplegate and the road leading north, a group of citizens came into the streets to block their path. The commons of the city took the victuals from the carters and wouldn't suffer it to pass, wrote a chronicler. They insisted that the city's governors send a delegation to tell the Queen that she couldn't enter London while the feared northern men remained in her party. The rumour Clement Paston had reported to his brother had clearly taken hold. Everyone now believed that if the Lancastrian army was allowed within the city walls, then London, like St. Albans, would be robbed and despoiled. Margaret had little choice but to take her husband and son once more back north. The move, and London's communal decision that it was safer to hold with the defeated Yorkists than the victorious Queen, would prove fatal. Warwick's escape from St. Albans allowed him to reunite with Edward, Earl of March. At the end of the month, they gathered their forces together in the Cotswolds. There they took a bold decision. Warwick had lost command of Henry's person, and without him, they lacked a totem for their legitimacy. But under the act of accord that had been passed between Henry and the late Richard, Duke of York, March was now heir to the crown. And since forces loyal to Henry VI had killed York at the Battle of Wakefield, March could argue that he was justified in regarding the act of accord to have been broken. He no longer had to wait for Henry's death to claim the crown that the Yorkists argued was theirs by blood. He was completely justified in seizing it. This, at any rate, was a theory. On Thursday, February the 26th, the Earl of March rode into London, accompanied by Warwick and their noble allies. The city was in the early days of Lent, but if the somewhat biased chroniclers are to be believed, 
There was a great cheer at his coming. Rhymes and ditties celebrated his arrival, one of which hailed him with the image of the White Rose of York, one of several badges and symbols that belonged to the family. Let us walk in a new vineyard, and let us make us a gay garden in the month of March, with this fair white rose and herb, the Earl of March. On Sunday, March the 1st, Warwick's brother, George Neville, Bishop of Exeter and Chancellor of England, gave a speech in St. John's Fields just outside the city walls, which was heard by thousands of soldiers and citizens. Neville detailed the case against Henry VI, and asked whether the crowd wished him to remain as king. According to one chronicler, the people cried, Nay, nay, and then they asked if they would have the Earl of March to be their king. And they said, Yea, yea. On Monday morning, London was plastered with bills detailing Edward's claim, and the next day, Tuesday, March the 3rd, Edward held a council meeting at his family's London residence, Baynard's Castle, where a handful of bishops and lords gave their assent to his claim. On March the 4th, the Te Deum was sung at St. Paul's. Bishop Neville preached a political sermon at the cross outside, and Edward rode out of the city in procession down to the Palace of Westminster. There, in the legal court of chancery, which was the place traditionally associated with a king's exercise of legal equity, and therefore the ultimate manifestation of the royal will in action, he was sworn afore the Bishop of Canterbury and the Chancellor of England and the Lords, that he should truly and justly keep the realm, and the laws thereof maintain as a true and a just king. He put on the robes and cap of state, although not the crown, for a coronation wasn't to be held for some time. Then Edward sat ceremonially on the king's bench, the marble chair in one of the two highest common-law courts in the land, which symbolized the personal authority of the king as judge. Finally, he went to Westminster Abbey Church to make an offering at the shrine of his namesake, St. Edward the Confessor. He was yet to be anointed and crowned, but in the eyes of his supporters he was now King Edward IV, the true inheritor of the crowns of England and France and the lordship of Ireland. While Edward was sitting on the marble throne in London, the Lancastrians were falling back to the north. As they went, the royal party sent out desperate instructions to the great families to send military aid. One such letter reached Sir William Plumpton, a fifty-five-year-old follower of the Percy family of Northumberland, and a wealthy, influential gentleman in his own right, with land and manors in Yorkshire, Derbyshire, and Nottinghamshire. His letter was sent from York on March the 13th, 1461, and marked with the small waxen seal of Henry VI's signet. It advised him that our great traitor, the Earl of March, hath made great assemblies of riotous and mischievously disposed people, and hath cried in his proclamations havoc upon all our true liege people and subjects, their wives, children, and goods. Sir William was charged to raise all such people as ye may make defensibly arrayed, and come to us in all haste possible, for to resist the malicious intent and purpose of our said traitor, and fail not hereof. A loyal subject and an old soldier, 
Sir William didn't delay. As Queen Margaret and her allies raised the north of England for battle, Edward's men raised the realm below the River Trent. They sent instructions to the sheriffs of more than thirty southern counties, damning he that calls himself Henry the Sixth, and charging all manner of men between sixty and sixteen, arrayed in defensive wise, in all haste to come and wait upon the king. Equipping for war was no small undertaking, whether for knightly men-at-arms expected to fight in the thick of battle, the thousands of archers who protected them, or likely armoured common soldiers who were assembled to share the allegiance of whoever happened to be their local lord. Armour, weaponry and materiel ranged from the vastly expensive bespoke suits of plate armour worn by the wealthiest lords and captains, to clubs, blades and staves wielded by the rank and file. Even to dress a man of Plumpton's rank before a battle was a task that took several pairs of hands. One fifteenth-century manuscript describes the process by which a man-at-arms squires should dress him. He was to wear no shirt, but a satin-lined twilled cloth doublet slashed with holes for ventilation. Gussets of mail, that is chain mail, must be sewn unto the doublet under the arm. These were vital to protect the wearer from dagger thrusts at vulnerable points, where a sly blade piercing a joint in plate armour could sever a major artery or find its way into a vital organ. So the twine used to attach the mail to the doublet was as strong and durable as that used to string a crossbow. More thick undergarments, including patches of blanket to prevent chafing at the knees, were stitched all over with tough cord loops, on which plates of heat-strengthened and highly polished metal were hung. Sheet metal covered the body from throat to toe, and was topped by a heavy helmet with a visor, an attachment for an identifying personal insignia, and a tiny slit through which to view the terror of the slaughter. A knight's horse might be as heavily protected as a rider, who would use a lance to impale his enemies if he rode with the cavalry. Otherwise, weapons were long, heavy, or sharp, or sometimes all three at once. Wicked little rondel daggers could be driven into a man's heart, eye, or brain at close range, while massive forty-inch broadswords that were swung with two hands by the richest and best-trained men on the battlefield permitted more room to attack. Perhaps the deadliest handheld weapon of all was the poleaxe, or bill, a strong wooden shaft, up to six feet in length, topped with a heavy and fiercely sharpened curved blade on one side, a short claw-like point on the other, and a thin spike at the top. Swung hard, this could crush armour and break the flesh and bone beneath. It could trip an opponent, and once felled, a man-at-arms was vulnerable, because the weight of the armour could make it desperately difficult to get back up. The thick blade could hack off the limbs of less well-protected enemies, or lop chunks out of the skull of a knight who removed his helmet either to see properly, to communicate, or to drink. Throughout the month of March, thousands upon thousands of men bearing weapons like these assembled throughout England and beyond. 
They came from everywhere between Wales and East Anglia, and from Scotland to Kent. Thanks to Warwick's cordial relations with lords overseas, Edward's army included a company of soldiers sent by Duke Philip of Burgundy. They carried above them the banner of Louis, the Dauphin of France, and eldest son of Charles VII. The Lancastrians far outnumbered them in the numbers of English nobles under their flag. Besides the Dukes of Somerset and Exeter, the Earls of Northumberland, Wiltshire and Devon, Lord Rivers, and his son Antony Woodville, Sir Andrew Trollope, knighted by the Queen after the Second Battle of St. Albans, and twelve or thirteen other peers. The Yorkists marched slowly north from London toward Pontefract, men flocking to their side as they went. By the end of March, reckoned their paymasters many years later, they had forty-eight thousand six hundred and sixty men. The Lancastrians, however, may have had as many as sixty thousand. Even if we account for the usual exaggerations, these were two gigantic armies. The first engagement took place on Saturday, March the 28th, at Ferrybridge in Yorkshire, a crossing point on the Great North Road, just a few miles northwest of Pontefract. The Lancastrians had camped close to the village of Towton, or possibly in the village of Tadcaster, nine miles away across the River Eyre. When they received intelligence that the Yorkist lords John, Duke of Suffolk, and Lord Fitzwalter had been charged with rebuilding the broken bridge across the air, they sent a detachment of light horsemen under Lord Clifford to beat them back. A bloody fight ensued in which Fitzwalter was killed. As Edward IV pressed more men from his main army to reinforce the bridge, the Lancastrians turned to retreat. They fell into a trap. Edward had also sent Lord Falkenberg and a small contingent of men to cross the river three miles upstream from Ferrybridge. Falkenberg rode with deadly mounted archers beside him, and they stalked Clifford's men, eventually ambushing them at dusk near the village of Dintingdale. When Clifford removed his metal neck guard to drink a glass of wine, an arrow hurtled through his throat, killing him instantly. The Yorkists then fell on the rest of the party, slaughtering them where they stood. The great showdown for the crown of England had begun. The night that followed was abysmally cold, and the next day, Palm Sunday, dawned bleak and frigid. The Yorkshire countryside was frozen over and snow and sleet were falling, increasingly heavy as the early morning unfolded. Nevertheless, the two massive armies rumbled into position at Towton, and by nine o'clock they were ready to fight, mustered in two huge lines, facing each other across a shallow ridge. The blizzard swirled around them, snow blowing straight into the faces of the Lancastrians and making the battlefield a slippery, half-blind nightmare. Men would have stamped and trembled with the cold, awaiting a signal that battle was ready to begin. For those who could see, banners fluttered above the troops, advertising the presence of the dozens of lords on either side. Heraldic patterns of blues, whites, red and gold, marking out the location of the commanders and lordly captains on either side. But only on the Yorkist side 
was there the banner of a king of England. Edward IV was in the field, but Margaret and Henry VI were lingering behind the lines at York, waiting anxiously for word of the result. Eventually the cry went up to begin battle, and the wet snowflakes were joined by a bloody blizzard of arrows, carried hard on the wind from the Yorkist archers under Lord Falkenberg. Some fire was also exchanged by gunners, men wielding primitive artillery which fired iron and lead shot of more than an inch in diameter. Even in the wind, the blast from these hand cannons must have been terrific, made all the more so by the occasional screams of the gunners whose weapons backfired and exploded in their hands. Seeing that in this exchange of fire the Yorkists had the wind at their backs, and being unwilling to stand in the storm and watch his men shot to death, the Duke of Somerset gave the order to advance. The Lancastrians waded downhill toward the enemy lines, crashing into the vast line of the Yorkist army, and beginning a long and exceptionally fierce battle, which would turn out to be the bloodiest ever fought on English soil. The whitened, undulating landscape of Towton Plain was rent with the judder of polacks and sword blade into armour and flesh, the scream of wounded horses and dying men, the press of steaming bodies into one another, men falling and flailing and slipping as bodies pile high on top of one another. Orders had been given by Edward that lords should be killed and not captured, but the death toll was equally appalling among the well-born and the lowly. As the armies grappled and lashed out, the fronts swayed and began to pivot through forty-five degrees, so that from a starting position in which the lines were arrayed on an east-west line, by the afternoon they had swung around, so that the Lancastrians were fighting on a northeast-southwest axis, with their backs to the flooded meadow of a deep waterway called Cockbeck. Their right flank was menaced by Yorkist archers, and their left was now fighting at the bottom of a hill, having been driven hard around when the Duke of Norfolk joined the fighting on the Yorkist's right. In short, the Lancastrians were being driven into a wetland that swiftly became a deathly pool of blood. Their only escape was to make their way uphill from the left flank and attempt to flee back toward Towton and Tadcaster. Doing so, however, meant scrambling up wet and churned up turf with a blizzard on their backs. As they tried to flee, they were mown down by the Yorkist cavalry who swept over the open ground, cudgelling and lancing their enemies with abandon. Even those who made it past Towton suddenly found themselves trapped once more. Before the battle, the Lancastrians had broken the wooden bridge farther up Cockbeck, and they were now penned in at the far end of the battle site. As the cavalry closed in on them, men threw off their armour and tried to wade or swim through the brisk water. Weary, wounded, or half-frozen, they drowned by the dozen, until eventually the beck was so dammed with corpses that their colleagues could crawl to safety over what became known as the Bridge of Bodies. With men dying in their thousands, the Lancastrian line dissolved by mid-afternoon, and the leaders took flight. 
The Earl of Wiltshire, perhaps the greatest coward of his generation, had previously run away from the first battle of St. Albans and the battle of Mortimer's Cross. He brought his tally to three desertions by abandoning Towton, but this time his luck had run out. He made it to Newcastle before being captured and beheaded. Andrew Trollope and the Earl of Northumberland were both cut down on the battlefield. The Dukes of Somerset and Exeter ran for their lives and escaped. The Earl of Devon also ran, but was too badly injured to make it beyond York, where he too was caught and executed. Behind them, the leader's abandonment of the field turned defeat into a devastating rout. On Edward's orders, no mercy was shown in victory. Skulls later found on the battlefield showed the most horrific injuries. Faces split down to the bone, heads cut in half, holes punched straight through foreheads. Some men died with more than twenty wounds to their head, the signs of frenzied slaughter by men whipped into a state of barbaric bloodlust. Some victims were mutilated, their noses and ears ripped off, fingers snipped from hands to remove rings and jewellery in the plunder of the dying. The field of Towton was known as the Bloody Meadow, and with good reason. On April the 7th, 1461, Bishop Neville of Exeter wrote to the Bishop of Teramo in Flanders. He reported the events of the six weeks that had just passed, including the slaughter at St. Albans, Ferrybridge, and Towton, and estimated that 28,000 men had been killed at the latter. The figure was repeated by Bishop Beecham of Salisbury, in a letter of the same day. Alas, he wrote, we are a race deserving of pity, even from the French. Indeed, it must have seemed to many in 1461 that all the fates that had befallen the French a generation previously, when Armagnacs fought Burgundians, and the crown was tossed about and tussled over to the utter ruin of the realm, had now been visited on the islanders across the sea. England was ruled by deeds of savagery. The North Country was drenched in blood, and, most distressing of all, two kings were at large. Queen Margaret's decision to hold back Henry VI and Prince Edward from the Battle of Towton had proven a wise one. For even though the Lancastrians were decisively defeated, they weren't quite exterminated as a royal line. They retreated to Scotland with a few surviving allies, the Dukes of Somerset and Exeter, Lord Roos, and the judge, Sir John Fortescue. Other Lancastrian lords, such as Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, soon joined them. They were, however, very much a rump court, militarily ruined, financially constrained, and exhausted. King Edward IV spent a month in the north mopping up resistance before returning to London in triumph in May for the coronation that would set God's seal on his accession to the crown. He would now claim not only to be king by right of blood, but to have had his claim vindicated in blood on the battlefield. 
An act of his first Parliament, called to Westminster in November 1461, rehearsed the legal case against Henry VI's kingship, and put forward the righteous case for his own. By that time, Parliament was merely putting the legal stamp on what was already a political fact. For on Friday, June the 26th, Edward had made a ceremonial entrance into the capital that had long supported his claim, and two days later he had been crowned as a thirteenth Plantagenet and first Yorkist King of England. Chapter 13 The Noble and the Lowly Edward IV was far from the youngest man to have ascended the English throne, but he was perhaps the most hastily prepared. At nineteen years old, he had been raised as the eldest son of a great nobleman. He had studied hard, prayed diligently, learned to fight and dance, to speak courteously, and to give his attention to the business of managing a great estate. But it was still some distance between growing up to become a duke, and suddenly arriving as a crowned and anointed king of England. And yet, here he was, carried to the throne on the wave of his dead father's ambition, his hands stained with the blood of his enemies. Fortunately, much of the outward business of kingship came naturally to Edward. As a young man, he was more than six feet tall and handsome, if not pretty, Surviving portraits capture narrow eyes and pursed lips above a prominent chin. Edward was greatly taken with the lavish dress, manners, and courtly habits that were fashionable in Burgundy and elsewhere on the continent. And to match his grand appearance, the new king was possessed of courtly charm, allied with a military swagger. Although he had a fierce temper when goaded, he was generally of a gentle nature and cheerful aspect, wrote one contemporary, also recalling that the king was so genial in his greeting that if he saw a newcomer bewildered at his appearance and royal magnificence, he would give him courage to speak by laying a kindly hand upon his shoulder. He had a sharp mind and a keen memory. The author of the extended English history, known as the Crowlin Chronicle Continuations, frequently admired Edward's foresight and political acumen, and marveled that he could recall the state and business of almost all men scattered over the counties of the kingdom, just as if daily they were in his sight. Edward had uncommonly clear trust in his own judgment and the ability to inspire great loyalty in the men whom he picked to counsel him. And like many of the great Plantagenet kings before him, from Richard the Lionheart to Henry V, he had proven himself on the battlefield at a young age. Many writers, contemporary or nearly contemporary with Edward's reign, struggled to find fault with his person and his broad approach to government, with one exception. The new king was, it was frequently said, a debauched lecher. He was certainly known in his time to be fond of women, and it didn't always matter whether they were attractive or not. Tongues wagged. The Italian clergyman, humanist and scholar Dominic Mancini, who visited England to write a contemporary history, and saw his subjects at first hand, 
called Edward licentious in the extreme, and reported that the new king pursued with no discrimination the married and the unmarried, the noble and the lowly, while the Crowland continuator, although writing more than two decades after Edward's accession, scratched his pen in sadness at the fact that such a talented and confident governor could also be such a gross man, so addicted to conviviality, vanity, drunkenness, extravagance, and passion. Even if we allow for the prudishness of the writers, and for the fact that some of these judgments were more appropriate to the later years of Edward IV's life than the perilous days during which he first seized his crown, the impression was consistent. For the first three years of his reign, Edward's main concern wasn't sensuality, but survival. In March 1461, God had smiled on his claim to kingship by blessing him with victory on the battlefield. But the Lord hadn't given him mastery of his kingdom. Rather, at the point that Edward first wore the crown, he was still essentially the head of a faction— a private lord who needed to build his public authority in order to claim the full loyalty of his subjects. Just as Henry Bolingbroke had found when he deposed Richard II and took the crown as Henry IV in 1399, a usurper was bound to pursue two apparently opposing strategies. He was obliged to prove that he would be an impartial ruler, able to defend the realm and offer justice to all his subjects, but at the same time, he was obliged to reward and favour those men who had helped him take the throne in the first place. This was no easy task at the best of times, and it was far from the only issue that faced Edward. There were also very pressing problems of violent public disorder, caused by more than a decade of intermittent rebellion, plotting and civil war, and the threat of attack by foreign powers eager to seize on England's moment of desolation and distress. Charles II of France died from long-standing infections in his leg and jaw on July the 22nd, 1461, less than a month after Edward's coronation, but his hot-headed and belligerent son, who succeeded as Louis XI, was sure to want to discomfit the new English king, as much as possible. On top of this, Edward had to build from scratch a working government, staffed with men whom he could trust not only to be loyal, but to be competent. Finally, he had to consider his dynastic duty, to father enough children to be sure that the future was secure, and to discourage the schemes of anyone who had watched his rise and now considered the crown a bauble, to be contested by anyone with old royal blood in their veins. It was a daunting task. Edward began with the Lancastrians. A good many of the leaders had been wiped out at Towton, but a hard core of the committed still survived. Several coastal castles in Northumberland were held by Lancastrian captains, and it took a long and concerted campaign of siege warfare to winkle them out. Queen Margaret had taken Henry VI and Prince Edward back into Scotland, and for the next two years she attempted to raise support for a new invasion, allying herself first with the government of James III, and subsequently seeking financial and military aid from Louis XI. 
She managed to launch a land and sea invasion of northern England during the spring and summer of 1463, linking up with the defenders of the northern castles, but ultimately she was repelled and forced to flee England for good. While Henry VI remained in Scotland, Margaret and Edward were compelled to live the rest of the decade in exile on the continent. Jasper Tudor, the king's half-brother, who had been stripped of his earldom of Pembroke by act of attainder, served as a go-between, travelling back and forth between France and Scotland, while also attempting to raise an invasion fleet and concentrating his efforts on harassing the Welsh coast. A small group of other die-hard Lancastrians, including Henry, Duke of Exeter, and Sir John Fortescue, remained with the Queen in impoverished exile. But their efforts to return were firmly resisted, and in October 1463, Edward secured a truce with France, which forbade Louis XI to engage with Lancastrian plots, effectively dashing all hopes of a swift return. Meanwhile, sympathisers who remained actively defiant in England were rooted out, although only a tiny number were attainted in Parliament for their part in the fighting of 1455 to 1461, there was still a move to crush the most implacable. Sweeping legal commissions visited rebellious towns and imposed exemplary justice on townsfolk about the realm. In some places, the severed heads of traitors and rebels were left to rot on poles for up to six months. Many of these heads belonged to the low-born and unfortunate, but others fell from noble shoulders. They included that of the aging and ill John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, who had been notable for his neutrality in all the armed conflicts to date. But in February 1462, Oxford was arrested with his eldest son, Aubrey, and tried for treason for plotting against Edward's life. The two men were executed within a week of each other on Tower Hill, on a scaffold of four foot in height that all men might see. Edward's early efforts in quelling Lancastrian rebellions rested heavily on Warwick and the Nevilles. Warwick was entrusted with defending the North and spent nearly three years bringing it to obedience, fighting a wearisome border war in which great castles like Annick, Norham and Bamborough were reduced with great ordnance and guns, and the resilience of the rebels and their Scottish allies was slowly but surely ground down. In reward for these duties and his previous long and dangerous service, lands and offices taken from the defeated Lancastrians were given to Warwick on a massive scale. He was appointed Great Chamberlain of England, Admiral of England and Warden of the Sink Ports and Dover Castle for life. He also retained his invaluable post of Captain of Calais. He became Warden of both the East and West Marches in the North, making him the sole military authority below the King. He became Steward of the whole Duchy of Lancaster. He inherited all his mother's lands when she died in 1462, he took command of huge swaths of territory, particularly in the north, where he was awarded former Percy estates. He was confirmed, in short, 
as the wealthiest and most preeminent nobleman in the realm. His family shared in the spoils. Warwick's uncle, William Lord Falkenberg, was raised to Earl of Kent, and John Neville was created Lord Montague, and subsequently Earl of Northumberland, the old Percy title. George Neville, the loyal Bishop of Exeter who had preached Edward IV's accession at St. Paul's in 1461, was repaid by appointment as Chancellor and translation to the Archbishopric of York, a promotion he celebrated with a dazzling feast at which 6,000 guests were treated to several days of gluttonous roistering at Cawood Castle in Yorkshire. More than 100 oxen and 25,000 gallons of wine were said to have been enjoyed in the presence of the king's youngest brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. The Nevilles had backed the Yorks all the way to the crown, and they received their thanks in dazzling abundance. Of course, other noble families gained too as Edward IV set about expanding his political base. The Boucher family was also rewarded for loyalty as Henry, elder brother of Thomas Boucher, Archbishop of Canterbury, was created Earl of Essex. In Edward's own family, it was his young brother and heir George who profited most from the Yorkist victory. George was made Duke of Clarence and given a large block of former Lancastrian lands, including the late Edmund Tudor's earldom of Richmond. In Wales, William, Lord Herbert, was given most of Jasper Tudor's confiscated estates, custody of Edmund Tudor's son and heir, Henry Tudor, and virtually uncontested power in the Principality. And in the household, the main beneficiary was William Hastings, who became Lord Hastings, Chamberlain of the household, gatekeeper to the King's presence and will. Other new men were also cultivated. The West Country landowner Humphrey Stafford became an important ally, as did the Bedfordshire Knight Sir John Wenlock. Both Stafford and Wenlock were raised to the baronage for their friendship and service. None, however, enjoyed so much prestige and royal favour as the Nevilles. Or so it seemed. Then in 1464 something extraordinary happened. Among all these old and new families coalescing in a new pool of political support for the Yorkist king, there arrived another family, one who would rise to outstrip almost every other in their power and prestige, despite rising from extremely humble roots. They were the Woodvilles, and their fortunes would be yoked to those of the House of York for the next two decades. Autumn was drawing in, and the festival of Michaelmas was approaching, a holiday that coincided with the end of the harvest, which all of England rose to celebrate with merrymaking, dining, drinking, and good cheer. It was the middle of September, 1464, and the lords of England gathered at Reading Abbey to hold a conference with their king. They met in the glorious Abbey Chapel, a place intimately connected with the ancient history of the English crown, not least since it was the resting place of the great Norman king and lawgiver Henry I and his second wife and queen, Adeliza of Louvain. 
There were several political issues at hand, not least among them a controversial recoinage by which the value of England's money would be slashed by around a quarter, and the crown would make a handsome profit by reminting England's coins. The most pressing concern of all, however, was the most personal. The lords had gathered to discuss Edward's marriage. Young, vigorous, and single, Edward was a royal bachelor whose choice of wife was a keen matter of interest to a very great number of people. Marriage offered the chance to make a lasting alliance with one of the powers beyond the channel. It was an opportunity for Edward to produce the son and heir, a need that was as pressing as any before him. And, of course, it would allow the king to show the realm that he was growing up and taking his duties seriously, since, as one chronicler put it, men marvel that our sovereign lord was so long without any wife, and were ever feared that he had be not chaste of his living. There was a clutch of possible wives, each of whom represented a different path through continental politics. In 1461, Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, has suggested a marriage to his niece, the daughter of the Duke of Bourbon, apparently rather a beautiful young lady, and it was hinted in 1464 that this proposal remained open. An alliance with Burgundy had very strong trade advantages and was bound to be well received by the merchant elites in the city of London who had for so long been staunch supporters of the Yorkist cause. There was also a tentative offer for the hand of Isabella, the sister and heiress of Henry the Impotent of Castile, a kingdom with long ties to the English crown and the Plantagenet family, stretching back to the twelfth century. Or Edward could look north. At one point, during the worst troubles of his early reign, there were even thoughts of marrying the king to Mary of Gelders, the Scottish regent and mother of James III, albeit a woman whose reputation for chastity was worse even than Edward's. Finally, and perhaps most promisingly, negotiations were advanced with Louis XI of France to create an Anglo-French alliance through a marriage with a princess of the House of Valois. A French match was by far the most attractive offer to those who thought they held the English king's ear. Warwick and Lord Wenlock had been leading secret negotiations with the French since at least the spring of 1464, and possibly the previous autumn. By September 1464, Warwick felt that he was close to securing the hand of the French king's sister-in-law, Bona of Savoie. The most obvious advantage to a marriage alliance with Louis was that it would finally poison the stump of Lancastrian opposition, for without the support of the French and their allies, there could be no hope of Margaret of Anjou's ever leading an invasion to restore her limp husband to the English crown. There were also possible trade advantages— which could compensate for the loss of business that would accompany an abandonment of Burgundy. Warwick had a certain amount of personal prestige bound up in the negotiations. He reveled in the fact that he was spoken of in the courts and corridors of European palaces as the power behind the English throne, 
and the man who moved the young king he had created. The ambassadors and dignitaries joked that, as one put it in a letter to Louis XI, the English had but two rulers, Monsieur de Warwick and another whose name I have forgotten. This sort of thing tickled Warwick, whose landed power was quite equaled by his love of finery, display, and personal grandeur. But as he discovered abruptly at Reading in September 1464, his role as a chief mover of English policy wasn't quite so solid as he had reckoned it to be. Warwick came to Reading in September 1464, fully expecting that he and Lord Wenlock would be asked to go to a conference with Louis XI in Saint-Omer, a town not far from Calais in northern France, to finalize Edward's marriage to Bona of Savoie. The council at large wished to hear the broad thinking behind the French alliance that would naturally proceed from the Union. Yet when Edward met them in the Abbey Church, he relayed news that shocked the realm. He announced that he wouldn't be marrying Bona of Savoie, or indeed any other foreign princess, for he was already married, and had been for several months. His wife, the new Queen Consort of England, was a widow in her mid-twenties with two children by a recently deceased member of the lower nobility. Her name was Elizabeth Woodville. She was a fair-skinned woman with dark eyes and auburn hair. Above a fashionably high forehead, her slender and hard-ridged nose finishing in a little bulb that mirrored the smooth round ball of her chin. At twenty-six or twenty-seven years old, she was certainly still beautiful, and although she wasn't a member of the highest ranks of the nobility, she was somewhat famous thanks to her father, Richard Woodville, Lord Rivers. Rivers had been a minor landowner in Kent and Northamptonshire until 1437, when he married Jaquetta of Luxembourg, the widow of Henry VI's mighty uncle, John, Duke of Bedford. The spectacular match catapulted the hitherto unimportant Woodvilles into the aristocracy, with connections both to the Lancastrian royal house and various great European families, including the Luxembourg Counts of Saint-Paul and the Dukes of Burgundy. Rivers had followed up his own excellent marriage by providing solid noble unions for his family. His son, Anthony Woodville, wedded the heiress of Lord Scales, and, as a young lady, Elizabeth Woodville had been married to Sir John Grey, heir to Lord Ferrers of Gruby, whom she had borne two children, Thomas and Richard Grey. Appropriately, given Lord Rivers' connection to Henry VI, the Woodvilles had been loyal Lancastrians and active participants in the wars against the Yorkists. Rivers was one of those assembling a fleet for Henry VI at Sandwich in January 1460, when he and his comrades were kidnapped in a lightning raid by the Earl of Warwick and taken for interrogation to Calais. It was at Calais, indeed, that Rivers had first encountered the future Edward IV, for in a humiliating torch-lit ceremony before assembled Yorkist partisans, Warwick and Edward, then Earl of March, had reheated, that is, berated and scolded, the captive Lord Rivers for his humble upbringing, calling him Knave's son, 
and scoffing at his ignoble blood. Released from their humiliating ordeal, Rivers and his son Antony had both gone on to fight on the losing side at Towton. They had survived that bloody field and been pardoned by Edward in the aftermath. But Elizabeth Woodville's husband, Sir John Grey, had been less lucky in the business of war. He was killed fighting for the Lancastrians at the Second Battle of St. Albans. The circumstances of Elizabeth's marriage to the king were intriguing. It was said the couple had been wed privily in a secret place on the amorous occasion of May Day, 1464, most likely in a ceremony in Rivers House at Grafton at Northamptonshire. The wedding had subsequently been kept secret for nearly five months. A story went about, embellished with every retelling, that the king had promised to marry Elizabeth as the most direct means to get her into bed, and that Elizabeth had attempted to defend her honour by threatening Edward with a dagger before eventually succumbing to his youthful charm. This titillating tale was included in the Italian courtly poem De Mulieribus Admirandis, of Wonderful Women, written in Terza Rima by Antonio Cornazzano, sometime before October 1468, so very clearly it had romantic appeal across Europe. There was probably more poetic fancy than journalistic truth to Cornazzano's account. All we know from sources immediate to the event is that within a week of Edward's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville becoming public knowledge, diplomatic channels were buzzing with the news that Edward had determined to take the daughter of my Lord Rivers, a widow with two children, having long loved her, it appears. The idea that the new king had married for love rather than for hard-headed political gain must have made a certain amount of sense to the bewildered ambassadors who gossiped together in the courts of Europe. How else to explain the astonishing rise of Elizabeth Woodville, the unlikeliest queen consort in English history? Not least among her imperfections was the fact that she was an Englishwoman. Since the Norman Conquest, a matter of four centuries, no king of England had married one of his subjects. The last to do so had been Edward the Confessor, who married the impeccably noble and virginal Edith of Wessex in 1045. As an English subject, Elizabeth brought with her no obvious diplomatic gain and no useful foreign alliance. Quite the contrary, her large family was already noted for their social ambition and obvious desire to advance themselves by marrying into other families' titles and estates. With two sons, a father and more than ten siblings, Elizabeth brought with her obligations for royal favour and grants that would have to be met, in part, out of the Crown's precious resources. She promised even less to the Crown than the impoverished Margaret of Anjou had brought when she married Henry VI in 1445. Indeed, Edward's sudden marriage threatened to do active damage to England, both at home and abroad. The French king was completely blindsided by the news of Elizabeth's presentation. The first he knew of it was when Warwick and Wenlock failed to appear at Saint-Omer. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, 
as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.